Episode 12, Finding the Value of an Innovation with Dr. Adam C. Powell of the Payer and Provider Syndicate. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. As a healthcare marketer, I pretty much spend my entire day trying to figure out what the value of something is so that we can write the the marketing copy, which is going to articulate that value. So I was really excited today to speak with Adam Powell of the Payer and Provider Syndicate because he has constructed a very elegant framework in which to quantitatively assess what the value is of any given innovation. And when I say innovation, I I could mean a medical device, I could mean a pharmaceutical product, I could mean an app, I could mean anything in between. What I'm talking about with, with Adam today is exactly how his model works in in order to calculate the ROI or the profitability or the the KPI that a customer can realize from any given innovation. And it also helps determine where efforts should best be spent or best be allocated. For example, if I have 10 potential different avenues I could pursue and I split my energy between all 10 of them, obviously that's going to be a lot less successful than if I understand what the absolute best avenue is to pursue and I put all of my energy, I focus all of my energy into pursuing that that avenue. I could get 10 times as far in, in, in one direction than I can in, in 10 different directions. In business, what you don't do is is sometimes almost important as what you you do. Adam's model and the, the, the very sophisticated methodology that he has developed over the years is exactly the data that we need in, in order to affect that focus. The other thing I thought was really interesting about what Adam's talking about in comparison to the old school pharmaceutical economic models in any case is that all the assumptions are built on sliders so that when the customer gets the model, they can tinker around with with the model and assign more greater or lesser importance to the assumptions which underpin all of the calculations. And I think that's absolutely quintessential because, you know, back in the old days of, uh, of pharmaceutical economic models in any case, you know, one of the, the big issues that they had was that customers would get them and kind of discard them in, in a sense because the assumptions that were made just simply did not align with the reality of the customer's world. Help me welcome Dr. Adam C. Powell of Payer and Provider Syndicate to the program today. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Adam. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to have you here. So why don't you talk first a little bit about what, what exactly you do? What is this quantitative strategy consulting? I'm a healthcare consultant, and I help companies understand how they deliver value. Oftentimes, in strategy consulting, the output is a PowerPoint presentation. It's something very static. You do a bunch of work with a team, and then at the end of the day, you meet with the client, and you show them what you did. You talk about it a bit, but it's all kind of locked down on paper. In fact, it often is on paper. Quantitative strategy consulting, uh, the way a payer provider does it, is a much more dynamic process. We build models of the implications of value propositions. We help unpack how things deliver value, and then the assumptions behind how that value is delivered, 
so that we can work with clients and understand how adjustments to those assumptions and adjustments to the product or service impact the overall value. The output here is a conversation, and it's largely Excel-based. That unpacking of the value, that is particularly important in today's healthcare environment where it's all about value. So I'm sure you're really busy right now. Most definitely. I just read an article about you this morning, my friend. And oh. uh, yeah, <laughs> and this is how it described your payer and provider syndicate. It said that you're a consulting firm that uses techniques from health service research, i.e. the quantitative that you just discussed. But this is the part I thought was really interesting, to bring about change in the health insurance and hospital industries. Do you feel that doing the sort of the spreadsheet-oriented quantitative work that you do, can you explain how that affects change better than the PowerPoint version? Payer provider is obsessed with working with innovators to help them deliver value to the healthcare ecosystem. These companies often are not payers or providers themselves, but work very closely with them and bring about change in them. That is, they're often selling a product or a service to them, like a utilization management company is one example, an adherence management company, a new device to enable care to be delivered more affordably. These are all different types of innovations, some service, some hardware, that interact with the healthcare system and enable things to be done a bit differently. The only thing is that things will only be done differently if doing so is valuable, if it can either do so at both better cost and better quality or you know, same cost and better quality or same quality and better cost. So a payer provider is bringing about change by really helping these innovations come to market. Yeah, I can really see that because oftentimes, you know, I've sat in many meetings where we have come to the very real conclusion that our biggest competition is often inertia. So it would be very important, what's absolutely quintessential in order to bring about change is to really be able to, in, in crystal clear language, articulate what the value is of moving from, from the current standard. Definitely. And in the models we build, there typically is a baseline, which is current performance. If you're bringing about a new utilization management system, well, what does the utilization look before? What does it look like after? If you're bringing about you know, a new device to test hearing, what percentage of the population can, can hear well before? What percentage of the population can hear well after? So inertia is often the, the key competitor. There could also be some sort of a gold standard intervention that's currently used that's the key competitor. But this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. We have to always account for what else might be done. But you didn't start out payer and provider syndicate with this exact service mission. How, how did your services evolve over the... Over, over your tenure as the president of your organization? I'm a healthcare economist. I trained at the Warden School and saw a lot of cool research, a lot of cool methodologies being used to unpack healthcare problems. And the way a payer provider began was to market different methodologies that different payer provider experts had developed to uh, various healthcare organizations that wanted to utilize them. What we learned was that Ultimately, a lot of these methodologies were a bit hard for people to understand in that it was probably better to focus on measuring value and addressing problems presented by clients than marketing particular methodologies. That makes sense. And, and it's funny. Um, 
I'm actually currently reading this book by Sally Hogshead. It's called How the World Sees You. And there's a quote on page six. As you can tell, I haven't gotten very far. And it says, great advertising isn't isn't about what a company wants to say. It's about what the market wants to hear and talk about and buy. So Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, Payer provider sells ROI models. These people seem to want ROI models. That had not been our opening hypothesis, but it's been tested by the market and uh, shown to have some validity. How did you wind up here? What was it about your early career or what lessons did you learn or, or, or just what happened in there that you wound up? Yes. So here has multiple aspects to it. Um, well, one, I'm in Boston, which is not necessarily a natural place for me to be, but it's the place I want to be. And two, I wound up as a consulting healthcare economist. And so I'll, I'll walk you through my journey a bit as to how I got here. It all started at MIT as an undergrad. I took a writing course called Communicating in Cyberspace. And we were given this really blank slate opportunity to build a web application to do pretty much anything. And so uh, I got together a team and we built something called NutraSpeed, which is a online web service to help people understand how much they're eating and how many calories it has. We did this back in the day before the smartphone. People had to use a little QCAT barcode scanner and scan the packaging all their foods and then enter the quantities they're eating to aggregate how many calories there were. Of course, the problem with all this is that fruits and vegetables and meat and everything healthy doesn't have a barcode on it. Small problem. Yeah. Nonetheless, this whole exercise of building the site, managing the project, and thinking about driving behavioral change through a web application made me think about the power of health IT and want to understand it better. And so I spent my senior year in college writing a thesis on health IT and how it was uh, supposedly reducing cost and improving quality in healthcare. I had enjoyed my time at MIT Sloan and, and thought, hey, it'd be nice to go to business school for a PhD. So I shopped the thesis around and you know, applied to a bunch of business school programs in both uh, information systems management and healthcare management. And lo and behold, I ended up at the Warden Healthcare Management Program. There, my passion for thinking about problems in healthcare technology continued. I decided for my dissertation that I wanted to study something where it would be easier to make apples-to-apples -apples comparisons than is the case with uh, health IT systems because they're often somewhat different between organizations. And so for my dissertation, I studied how hospitals buy CT machines. Again, thinking, how do, how do hospitals, these really complex multi-stakeholder organizations, make purchasing decisions? What impacts how they decide what to buy? And it turned out it was all sorts of crazy things. It was... You know, partially the cost and the revenue, but largely the prior experiences that the hospitals had had with the CT machines of that brand. And the reason why I was so rational was the people that were making the purchasing decision were not the people that were spending the money. And uh, there was a sort of a financial separation between the two. And so uh, I, I applied some of the theory from behavioral economics to hospital purchasing, to, to industrial purchasing setting where usually behavioral economics is thought of as being looked at from the perspective of an individual. I would have suspected that it was very economically driven, but basically what you're saying is that 
Well, you know, it's also funny because I read I read a McKinsey report recently about a completely different topic. But basically what it said was that ROI is very difficult to use as a, a purchasing standard because nobody knows the only ROI that anybody knows really is the ROI of things which are already in place. So kind of what you're saying, you know, the CIT machine that is already in place, they know exactly how it works and they know exactly sort of what the ROI delivers. But because there's no standards relative to new potential purchases, they can't compare things very easily. And therefore, they tend to, that's why progress is impeded quite a bit, because the only things that if, if you set a standard that you only want to buy things that you know the ROI of, you can pretty much only buy things that you've already have experience with. Well, you can use what you have experience with as a baseline, and you can build an ROI model that looks at the ROI of the new thing versus the baseline. As long as they're working with someone like you. Yeah? Yes, yes, exactly. And my clients have used these models in multiple ways. They've used them to explore what product or service to bring to market. Sometimes there's a variation of the product or service that has better ROI than another variation. Sometimes there's a channel through which to sell this. Or, or an end user that gets better ROI than another. And it's helpful for them to understand that before they invest a lot of resources in going down the wrong channel or going to the wrong, the wrong market or the wrong variation. I can see how why, why what you're doing is so incredibly important because it really could give someone very big peace of mind that moving into the unknown, you're really giving them an opportunity to move into the unknown, but with very safe, secure sort of steps. Exactly. And the other thing that we're doing is helping them tell clients and potential investors how they're delivering value to them, even after they already have. So there are some clients that have already built the innovation, and they need to retrospectively justify to their investors or to their customers what exactly is the value they're delivering. And this gives them a way to articulate it in a way that's very thoughtful and very clear. And when you say innovation, what you're doing is you're figuring out what, what is the value of an innovation. What, exactly. is, what is the sort of the breadth and depth of innovation? What, what does that mean exactly? According to the dictionary, an innovation is the introduction of new things or methods, which is pretty broad. The introduction of new things or methods. That means it can be a product and it can be a service. It's just being introduced. The difference between invention and innovation is that Innovation involves introducing something to the market. We invent all sorts of things, but oftentimes what we invent is not worth introducing. Sometimes one variation of it's more worth introducing than another, and there's different levels of value delivered. So just to give you an example here, imagine that you'd invented an inflatable rubber tube that can be worn around the waist. Okay, that's your invention. It's it's that, a big rubber tube. Well, that rubber tube has multiple potential applications. It could be brought to the market as a life preserver for a boat. You know, the value proposition is saves your life in an accident. It could also be brought to the market as a pool toy. Fun for kids. Totally different value proposition. I'm sure there's a fashion application. It could also be a it could also be a fashion accessory, uh, but yes. So so if you think about this, there's this one innovation here, one invention here that is two different types of innovation depending on how we bring it to market. And this thing has been brought to the market in those two different ways. But the willingness to pay is going to be totally different. The market size is going to be totally different. What Bear Provider does is to help companies figure out, look, we've got this inflatable tube. 
we want to be spending our effort on making a life preserver or pool toy. I guess it, it's nothing that is, oh my God, that's such a crazy thought. But but at the same time, it's a really important key component to to remember because you're absolutely right. The same basic you know, invention or item or even thought used two different ways is two entirely different things with two entirely different markets and, and they're going to have two entirely different ROIs and probably rates of success. Exactly. This is the first one we're thinking about is comparable to other life-saving devices, you know, other life preservers, life rafts. Those are all the comparables and the market is boats that need to be outfitted with life-preserving devices. And the second one, it's it's an entertainment device, and our and our market is people that need to be entertained. But our comparables are other things that provide entertainment, which tend to be things people aren't willing to pay quite as much for. And although the probably the the two different opportunities might not be in two different industries, as we talk about healthcare specifically, at the same time, if I develop NutraSpeed, which when I hear the name, doesn't say to me nutritional calorie counting. <laughs> this was many years ago. We didn't have a branding expert. We need to hire a branding expert. Or maybe and, you uh, did. Doesn't exist. The thing doesn't exist anymore, but it was uh, You'd catch someone's attention with that one. Exercise. I think I need some NutraSpeed, especially when it's, uh, it's Monday morning right now. So They said it sounded like an amphetamine aspartame mix. I tried to put up a Wikipedia entry about this thing, and that was what I got in the speedy deletion. Oh, Sounds that's hilarious. Like a, I mean, aspartame mix. <laughs> well, you know, there's probably a market for that, my friend. But I, I think what you're doing is really interesting because whenever we are innovative or, you know, trying to create a new methodology or all the different things that you had had just scoped out as, as meaning innovation, whenever we're doing that, to your exact point, there's a bunch of different ways that we could position that in the marketplace or a bunch of different directions or special populations that we might decide to focus on. So, being very able to to do exactly what you're saying right up front could really be the difference between a successful startup and not. Exactly. And I don't know if it makes sense for that tube to be a life preserver or pool toy, but models could be built and we could compare and, and at least have better evidence as to which is the stronger value proposition and provide strategic advice that's really based on some numbers. Or at least grounded, grounded in numbers. A lot of times, right, right at the very beginning, when you're, where you're just starting to your first foray into the marketplace. I mean, what you don't do is is just as important as what you do do because you do not have unlimited resources and unlimited time. So you really have to make sure that your, you know, your sort of fundamental first efforts are are going to be successful. Exactly. Many clients have had one invention that could have been three or four different innovations. Question is, which one is the right innovation? given their invention, because they want to dump the other two or three. Yeah, you could decide that you're going to focus on one type of comorbidity, comorbid condition. You could fo- you could focus on at-risk patients. You could focus on future risk. So that there's just even, even within a space as, you know, arguably, very arguably narrow as the healthcare space, there's any number of different ways that you could go with any given innovation. So why don't we talk about an example of, of how your methodology would work? Sure. So I'm going to start at the top by explaining the methodology. It's a six-step methodology that's a bit of a cycle. The first step is the one we were kind of working through together, which is to determine how the product or service generates value. And then once we've agreed upon that, or at least the number of different ways it generates value, we need to list all the key assumptions behind how that happens. 
Then we need to research baseline values for each assumption. And this can be done by looking at evidence in the literature, by conducting surveys, and if it really comes to it, just by guessing as to what looks like a reasonable baseline value. And for, for pricing, it's often a guess. But then the next step after that is to bound those baseline values with ranges and to create potential ranges for each assumption. So if we look up prior studies about the impact of, let's say, a pedometer or something, and they're all pretty close, we can create a pretty narrow range for that assumption's potential values. And if it's something like pricing where we're totally guessing, we can create a very wide range uh, for that assumption so that we can conduct a sensitivity analysis and later see how being at the lower high end of that range impacts the key performance indicators like ROI and profit that we care about. Once we've created the potential ranges for each assumption, we can integrate them to assess stakeholders' ROI, profit, or other key performance indicators. And then finally, we can tweak assumption values to assess the impact on stakeholders, making this a bit of an iterative process. So we've got step one, which I'm having trouble reading my handwriting. Sure. So the first step is to determine how it generates value. Okay. So step two, yes. list all key assumptions. Step three, research baselines for the assumptions. Step four, create potential ranges for each assumption. Step five, integrate the assumptions. And then step six, tweak the assumptions. All right, so let's see this in action. Could you just go through a narrative of how this all fits together? Sure. I'm going to give you a narrative that is very close to something we've done for a client, but in order to protect the client, I've slightly changed the innovation that's being considered. Let's imagine that we've developed a cheap hearing test kiosk that is equal in quality to the ones that people get in school, but costs a lot less to administer. And in this case, we'll imagine the innovation is a hardware device. So it's some sort of little kiosk that you stick your head in, and it tells you whether or not you need hearing aids. Now imagine we're going to explore the impact of putting said device in a workplace cafeteria. So putting it in the cafeteria of Facebook for all the Facebook employees. If we, if we put a hearing test device in the Facebook cafeteria, it would produce many different types of value. It would increase employee productivity. People are more productive because they can hear better and don't have to ask other people to repeat stuff. It can also cause savings from decreased professional test utilization. If people are going to audiologists and you know, racking up these huge bills as a result of that, and now they're using some sort of cheap on-campus device, that's going to be cost-saving for their insurance plan. If they're self-insured, that's savings for the company. It's also producing time savings for the employees as they now don't have to travel to get the testing. And it produces time savings because they don't have to spend effort scheduling the test. If those employees would have taken a sick day to take the test, it also produces time savings for the employer if the person is not having to leave work to take the test now. Are we on step one or step two now? That's step one. That's okay. really determining how it generates value. Okay. The device produces revenue in several ways. It could produce revenue from uh, sale of the machine itself, if that's how the company brings it to market per-use revenue from administering the tests, or uh, revenue from associated sales like selling hearing aids. Now, now that we've had a look at how it generates value and generates profit for the company that's selling it, we can dig into all the key assumptions. So first off, 
if we want to look at this at a per company level, we can just look at the number of employees in the company to get a sense of scale and the percentage of employees using the machine. Also, the percent of employees that would have had a hearing test without the machine at work. To look at this more broadly, we'd have to understand what percent of companies are eligible for this sort of a thing and what their average employee base is on a broader scale. But we're today just going to look at this from the perspective of a single company. And then we have to make some outcome assumptions. So we're going to have to uh, look at the percent that have a minor hearing issue detected and make an assumption about that. Also have to make an assumption about the percentage that have a major hearing issue detected and the percentage that buy a hearing aid from the company as a result of the test. And so that percentage are, are going to be the people that have an improvement in hearing as a result of having the test. So the first thing that we're doing is we're figuring out all of the various ways, you know, in this example, this, this hearing test could be valuable. And then we're going to list all the assumptions that we need to make in, in order to actually calculate that value. Exactly. And then we've got to list some assumptions impacting benefits. The percent productivity loss eliminated by fixing a mild hearing impairment and the percent productivity loss eliminated by fixing a major hearing impairment. You know, as you would imagine, a person that's slightly deaf probably is less impaired than a person that's majorly deaf. And so it's important to look in the literature as to how productivity is impacted by giving a person with different states of, of issue this sort of a test. We also have to consider the hourly value of an employee's productivity and the hourly value of an employee's time from the employee's perspective. If you think about a person at a tech company like Facebook, you know, maybe they make 120 a year, but the value of their productivity isn't 120 a year. It has to be much higher because if it was, it was 120 a year, they would never hire the people. You know, they've got to pay taxes on them. They've got to put them in a building. They've got to manage them. There's all these additional costs. So the value they're delivering has to be much higher. And in that industry, I think it's about 700000 per person. There's a big spread between the value of an hour of a person's life to the employer versus the a value of the hour of a person's life to the employee. There's a disparity there, um, which is important to consider when thinking about if you're saving an hour of the employer's time, that is keeping the person from running away from their desk for an hour and uh, being less productive, or if you're saving an hour of the employee's time, that is this is something they'd be doing on their own, you know, after work hours and their free time has value, but supposedly that they value that free time less than the company does. Uh, and another assumption impacting benefits would be the percentage of gold standard hearing exams that are avoided through the use of the machine, the cost of that gold standard hearing exam, the average time savings from taking the exam at work, the average time savings from not having to schedule the exam, and the percentage of employees that take sick leave for the exam, because those are the ones that are hurting their employer's productivity versus their own free time. There's also a lot of assumptions impacting costs incurred by the employer, the cost per exam, the cost of the machine, utilization rate of the machine operator, if there's a machine operator, cost the employer spends to market the test to one employer, which are one employee, excuse me. Additionally, there are costs incurred by the device maker. There is the average price of a hearing aid if a sale occurs. There's the percent profit captured by the manufacturer from that sale. There's the cost of the machine operator's time if there's an operator. The cost of deploying the kiosk. So there's a lot of different assumptions that impact the costs borne by both the device maker and the employer. How are you figuring out what all of those those costs are? Is this pretty much based on your experience or is this part of your model? Or are you kind of sitting at your desk or talking amongst yourselves just 
Depends on the thing. So some of these things are researchable, and some of them are assumable. If we're talking about an unskilled machine operator, the cost of them is going to be the cost of any unskilled labor. And so we look at what it costs to have a minimum wage employee, and, and there are additional costs and overhead associated with that, and we can come up with a cost that is pretty solid. You know, it's, it's something we can feel there's an evidence base to support. Likewise, if we're looking at what percentage of people that haven't had a hearing test have a hearing impairment, there's probably an academic paper on that. Now, as for what the price is of this service, that's a total guess. That's a design consideration. And so we're going to have to put a much wider confidence interval around what that is and, and allow people to perform a sensitivity analysis from a much wider range uh, with regards to the price of this test than we would with the cost of the employee that's administering the test. So this is where our PhD comes in handy. Uh, perhaps. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of assumptions here. I haven't even finished listing them all. The reason why I've listed out all these things, and I realize it may be boring some people to death, is the point is, is there's a ton of things to consider. There can be, you know, four or five dozen assumptions in a given model for a given product. And even that's an oversimplification. But what you see when you unpack all the assumptions and you list them out clearly and you perform sensitivity analyses is that while on paper we have a list of you know, five dozen things and they all look equal, in actuality, some of these assumptions really matter and really shift how much value this delivers. Some of the assumptions don't matter at all. It doesn't, doesn't make a difference. An example here, in a similar past model, there was a situation where the question was, should we put a machine operator to speed people through using the device? And you, you build this, this crazy kiosk, and you can either have people futz around and try to figure out how to use it, and it takes them 20 minutes. And they're sitting in the cafeteria, and they've you know, never done this before. Or you can have an operator there, and it takes them 10 minutes. But now there's a cost, and you got to charge more for the test because you have a, a person that's standing there all day. Well, if that person makes minimum wage, and the person works at Facebook, and their time is worth 700000 a year, it actually makes a lot of sense to just have the test cost more and have the operator. Having them futz around for 10 minutes is very expensive, much more expensive than the operator is. And so in that scenario, it makes a ton of sense to have the operator. Whereas if this thing was deployed in a pharmacy or it was deployed in a setting in which no one's capturing the value of a person's expended time, having the hearing test operated by an operator isn't really a great idea because a person on their own probably isn't willing to pay more. A person values their 10 minutes after work probably less than the employer values their 10 minutes during work. I can see why listing these assumptions, it, it's not only a matter of just getting as many as possible onto a piece of paper, but then it's also, which uh, might be one of your future steps, which is to evaluate which ones of them are going to impact whatever strategy you've chosen to to proceed with. Exactly. So I haven't gone through all the steps yet. There's a bunch more assumptions. I haven't listed them all out. There's one bucket called benefits captured by the employer. There's another bucket called benefits captured by the employee. There's a bucket of costs. And then this all gets aggregated into the key metrics, which would be the net benefit captured by the firm and its employees, and then also uh, the net benefit captured by the firm itself, because it may not want to consider the employees in making the decision. Uh, there's also the ROI of the firm's expenditure on testing and the profitability for the device manufacturer. So we now have these key performance indicators 
and we've got all these assumptions and we have ranges in all of them. And we can now play with the assumptions and see how sliding back their values from the low end to the high end of their bounds impacts the key performance indicators. And it turns out that for probably most of them, it doesn't really matter. And you can be a bit off, and you will be a bit off, and it doesn't really change the go or no go decision at the end of the day. Yeah, I actually just read it, or I was listening to something yesterday where someone said it's much better to be roughly correct than precisely wrong. <laughs> so, so exactly. So you can figure out if you're roughly correct with this. And unlike traditional paper-based strategy consulting, you can see which assumptions matter more. And you can also see roughly how much value is being delivered by the different value propositions. Because in determining the net benefit and the net cost, you're summing up all the benefits. And the benefits you're summing up are really the mathematical summation of whatever the value proposition is. So if the value proposition is improves hearing, well, how many people's hearing gets improved? You know, what's the productivity benefit for that improvement? And you, you get a number. If the value proposition saves time, well, how much time does it save? What's that time worth? You aggregate that up and you get a number. And now you've got a total benefit number that's consistent of both the productivity improvement and the time savings improvement. And you can look at those side by side and you're like, oh, so this is really all about time savings. Most people hear quite well. They know if they've got a problem. This is just about time savings. This has nothing to do with improving hearing. Or you find the opposite. But now you know what your key value proposition is, and you can push that one as you go to market, because that's actually how you're generating value. I've sat in many meetings where people sort of make fun of, here's a, a typical example, of IBM or Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they do so is because Microsoft runs around with, with a campaign which, which says that, oh, if you upgrade to this particular operating system, or if you do this differently, or you buy this, you know, whatever it is, then every employee across your organization will save two minutes a day <laughs> in computing time. And obviously... If you're the CEO of a company, you're thinking to yourself, well, A, maybe they just work in two minutes longer, so there's actually no cost um, savings to me, mm -hmm. or B, do I really believe that? Like, it, it just, it doesn't seem super fathomable. So how does what you're doing kind of differ? Like, what mistake are they making, I suppose? Well, they probably are saving people two minutes a day. I, I actually don't doubt them. But I, I used to work for Microsoft as a summer intern once upon a time. Oh, and one of the things they would commonly say is the biggest competitor is the prior product we made, which, which is why they've got such a hard situation. I mean, if you think about Word 2013, what's its number one competitor? Word 2010. What's its number two competitor? You know, Word 2007 and Word 2003. These products are mostly competing with themselves, just their older versions. And... And then the question is, is whatever incremental innovation they've added worth it? You know, does, does it make sense for the company to invest in this? When you, have to, when you have to look at who captures the benefits and who captures the costs, one of the assumptions is how flexible our work days is the time that would have been spent calling the help desk, but now is not because word is easier to use, captured by the employee or the employer. Basically, not having people chat about you in a, in a conference room as we were doing. What is really important to do is to make these the key assumptions correct. You know, basically. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Is is this a time savings for the employee? Is this a call center savings? What exactly 
is Microsoft Word 2013 doing that creates value? And can they justify? Can they show either through you know, market testing or through a consumer survey or through comparables that whatever it is they did, whatever it is that is the innovation, that is they brought something new to market, you know, improves outcomes. And it's easier if your innovation is quite radical and is, is not a very small increment above the prior innovation. Right. So they really have to make sure that they're quantifying the value of the incremental exactly. um, benefit, which which I can see is tough. But I also can see, you know, just kind of back to your mm-hmm. your methodology and how, and how it's quantifiable and back to your original value prop, which is bringing about change in the health insurance and the hospital industries, the more quantifiable it is. And quite honestly, the more that entities across the industry are very effectively and believably quantifying the benefit that of their innovation makes it easier on people who are trying to achieve value in the health industry to do so because they can effectively evaluate the options that are on the table. And the other thing too is the client can then walk the cust- their own customer through this whole model story. And so now they've got a much more quantitative way to describe how they generate value. I mean, we, we've already listed a bunch of random value propositions for Award 2013, but we don't really know which of them really matters. And we don't have a believable way of testing that. And this way, at least, we can say, look, we've done our homework. We've got a way to walk you through how we get to the value delivered. And it's not just some statistic, oh, it saves two minutes. You can actually see what would justify that. And then the buyer, you know, a hospital or health insurance or whoever that that buyer stakeholder happens to be can really determine how accurately that reflects their current situation and make a buying decision that they feel comfortable with. And in the case of uh, one client that was selling a service to health insurance companies, they built a template of the model. And then they customized the values of the template based on the operational parameters of the health insurance company clients because different clients were performing in somewhat different ways. And so rather than just presenting the same model to everyone, they tailored what they were showing so that it truly showed the ROI delivered to the client in question. I mean, of course, what that really makes the buyer hyper aware of is at a very macro level, I mean, obviously resources are not unlimited. So what they've got to do is determine, all right, should we go for a hearing test or would maybe a vision test, you know, have a higher ROI or something that is just not even in the same, you know, maybe of course it could be know, blood screening or, you know, could whatever. Be anything, yeah. you know, it, it, it could be anything. And companies have multiple resource constraints. Um, one is capital. So even if there's multiple positive ROI innovations. Uh, They may not be able to buy all of them. And the second is they have attentional constraints. Oftentimes it takes time to get things through committees, no matter how wonderful they are. So they may just be saying, look, we're going to do three things this year. Let's do the best three. Right. And then it's going to be up to the company to figure out what to look across all the different vendors in all the different areas and figure out at a very macro level what those what the three best things for them to do. And I, I found this out while I was doing all my hospital purchasing research is that they, they often have this attentional constraint as well as a capital constraint. Yeah, I think that especially in the industry today with just so much tumultuous change and so many things. I mean, I, it's you, you can't even catch people at their desks anymore because they're constantly pretty much running around screaming just based on all of the various priorities that they that they suddenly are tasked to deal with. 
But that example that you gave where, where we ran through the, the methodology for a, a hearing test, I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. that could be used for any innovation anywhere, an app or... Exactly. It's very simple to imagine this as an app. Siemens has a hearing test app. Now, I told you about a hardware device, but that whole example would have been the same except for maybe the machine operator that's assisting the person if this was an app. And a similar set of steps could be taken if you're looking at a service innovation, providing a, you know, on-site concierge medicine to the employees or anything of that nature. There's no reason this innovation couldn't be service or product, app or hardware. Say I recognize the value of, of what you're, you're talking about, the value of your value framework. what can I do immediately? You know, is there something that I could start thinking about today that that could help me refine or, or, yeah. First step I would recommend to the audience is to list out the ways your innovation might deliver value. And this can include all the possible ways, not just the main ways. It's important to put everything down on paper. Then, List out the dozens of assumptions that determine how much value you might deliver and how much profit you might generate from delivering it. Because oftentimes there are multiple assumptions about costs and benefits and scale and the percentage of the population that can utilize innovation and the percentage of the population that gets various benefits and incurs various costs from the innovation that impact this. There's also timing assumptions. When will these benefits and costs arrive? There are assumptions about who incurs the costs and benefits. And uh, there are assumptions about the odds that they'll exist. Some of these things may come into play in the future. Some of them may not. And if there's some sort of probabilistic element, it's important to capture that as well. Once you've listed out how you might deliver value and what assumptions define that, I encourage you to email me. My email address is powell at payerprovider.com, P-O-W-E-L-L at P-A-Y-E-R-P-R-O-V-I-D-E-R.com. What what I should do this afternoon is I I should just basically brainstorm, just clear, clear my mind, get a clean piece of paper and just write out all of the um, ways that my my innovation can provide value. And then it becomes a matter of trying to re- pick through them and refine and figure out exactly what matters. And you are available to uh, to help out should, um, should someone want to really do this in a scientific and complete fashion. Most definitely. There's nothing better than seeing a new innovation be brought to market. And likewise, sometimes flavors of innovations, particular versions, really shouldn't be brought to market. And that's good, too, because then we save companies resources and they can be more likely to win with innovations that will really help the market. If there's 10 different directions that you could go and you sort of half explore all of them, then your energies are divided 10 different ways, which is not never going to be nearly as successful as if you take all of that energy and you put it behind a winner. Um, exactly. Yeah. So that that makes um that makes a lot of sense. It's been so great speaking with you today, Adam. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed this. 
So I know I'm going to be setting aside some time this week to take Adam's advice. I am going to take a look at all of our customers' products that we work with. And I think I'm even going to take a look at some of the Franklin HealthCom products and services. And I am going to make a list of all of the different ways that these products and services add value to our customers. And then I'm going to take a look at the assumptions which underpin my value statements, which I have made. Just scratching my head here. Can't wait to dig in. Did you know that you do not have to remember to download the latest Relentless Health Value podcast each week? You can subscribe. If you subscribe, then the episode will be automatically delivered to you in one of two ways. The first way is via iTunes. If you go to RelentlessHealthValue.com and you look over in the right-hand sidebar, you will see a gigantic orange dot. If you click on that dot, you will be taken over to iTunes. And if you hit subscribe there, then every week in your iTunes library, the podcast will automatically download. If you use the podcast app, it will be extra convenient. The other way to subscribe is by looking right underneath that large orange dot to a little form there that says, get the podcast delivered to your email. If you click on that button and type in your email address, then once a week you will get an email with a link to the podcast. It is very easy to subscribe. I'm so glad that you listened this week. Please interact with us on Twitter. We are at Relentless Health on Twitter, and that would be Relentless with only one S. So Relentless with one S, health. Please definitely feel free to interact with us, leave a comment, ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. And I very much hope that you'll tune in next week.